0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablini Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this topic, the topic of this episode, was a suggestion from listener Jesse. And I feel like I should say that because it's such a gruesome story. I don't want
0: Sarah to be mad at me for (laughs) picking it. It does have a decapitated body. Yeah, that's true. That's why are I you thought, are you putting that in that the plus category? <laughs> no, that's
1: not why I su- selected it. I selected it because it was a listener's suggestion, and it is an interesting story. It's a fascinating mystery, and you know how we love those. It starts, at least for most of the world, this is when it started, with a fire that took place the morning of April twenty eighth, nineteen o eight, at a small farm just outside of Laporte, Indiana, which was then a town of about ten thousand, about sixty miles from Chicago. And the farm was owned by a widow named Belle Gunnis, and her home there was completely destroyed by the fire.
0: But it was after the fire that the real mystery started. So four charred bodies were found in the cellar, and three appeared to be the bodies of Gunnis's children, Myrtle Sorensen, Lucy Sorensen, and Philip Gunnis, who were 11, 9, and 5 years old, respectively. The fourth body, though, was kind of a puzzle, and... Like I said, that's where the mystery really started.
1: Yeah, at first, people assumed that the body was Gunnis's. Makes sense, right? It's a woman's body, and Gunnis lived there, so you imagine that she would be there with her kids. But there were a couple of problems. Right off the bat, people thought that the body seemed a little too small to be Belle. She was... A woman of some stature, let's say. She was about 5'8 and approximately 230 pounds. And this body appeared to belong to someone who was much shorter and lighter. It was also missing a head making it even harder to confirm the identity.
0: I should correct my earlier statement. This is why I thought you might have selected it. Because of the head. I know you like missing heads. But only with the Ned Kelly thing. Okay, yeah. okay. Well in Henry the too. Oh whoops okay, never mind. <laughs> but what really made people suspicious about this this find was the arrival of a man named Osle Helgelin, who came on the scene looking for his brother, Andrew. And he said that Andrew had been corresponding with Bell and insisted that the police search the property and look for this missing brother. What they found, though, was really disturbing. Andrew's dismembered body, plus the body of a lot of other people.
1: So, listener Jesse commented on what a media storm the story would have created if it had happened today, but it actually started a bit of a media frenzy back then, too. As more bodies were dug up, and it became more and more clear that Belle had been a ruthless killer, newspapers gave her catchy nicknames, like the Mistress of Murder Hill and Lady Bluebeard. But who was Belle Gunness, really? And why and how did she kill all of these people? And another question which is probably one of the main questions that people want to know now, did she really die in that 1908 fire? So we're going to look at all of this stuff, but we're going to start with that first question. Who was Belle Gunness?
0: So we don't know too much about Belle Gunness's early life, except that she was born in a small village in Norway on November 22nd, 1859. And her name was originally Brynhild, Paul's daughter, Storset. And her family was very poor. And several sources actually suggest that her father may have been a stonemason and that she probably had to work as a farmhand at an early age to help her family make ends meet. But what we do know is that sometime in or shortly after 1881, Brynhild Hild immigrated to the United States in her early 20s, specifically to Chicago, and changed her name to Bell. She had a sister named Nellie Larson who had immigrated to Chicago also, so she had a connection there. But she, again, returned to pretty grueling work. Yeah, and
1: again, we don't know too much about those first years in the United States for Belle, but we do know that she probably worked as a house servant, which would have been pretty tough work, and she probably didn't like it very much because her sister was later quoted as saying, quote, Belle was crazy for money and working as a house servant would not have afforded her much of that. By about 1884, she married a man named Max Mads Sorensen, who was also a Norwegian immigrant, but that wouldn't have really been her ticket to instant wealth either though. he was a department store detective and later worked for the Chicago Railroad. In the 1890s they opened up a confectioner's shop in downtown Chicago but that wasn't very successful. It was, however, insured. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, indeed. The building actually burned down around a year into their business venture, and after that they were able to collect a little bit of insurance money. Maybe it doesn't seem like such a big deal on the surface, but this kicked off a pattern for Bell that would probably raise a few red flags today. In 1898, the Sorensen's house also burned down, and they collected insurance money for that. And the couple's first two kids, who were also insured, died in infancy officially of acute colitis. But now looking back, people say the symptoms are similar to if they had been poisoned.
0: Okay, so even if you look at all of that as just really, really bad luck or a really weird coincidence, what happens next has to make you a little bit suspicious at least. So Mad Sorensen dies on July 30th, 1900, which just happens to be the one day that two life insurance policies from different mutual associations overlapped. Officially, the cause of death was heart failure, but his symptoms actually indicated strychnine poisoning and the insurance payout because of those two policies was pretty huge, $8,500 and That was quite a large sum for the time, and it said that Belle tried to go collect it just a day after the funeral, so she was certainly not um, playing the part of the grieving widow. It was probably suspicious, but there wasn't an autopsy, so... Belle got the insurance money and, and went on her way. She did. She used the money, actually, to buy the farm
1: on the outskirts of Laporte, And she moved there with three kids, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy. And just an aside here about the kids, it's generally accepted that Jenny, whose full name was probably Jenny Olson, was a foster child. But some say that none of Belle's children were her own. According to an article by Ted Hartzell in American History, Belle's sister, Nellie Larson, once said that Belle never had any children of her own though she would at times have as many as 12 children in her care. So just an interesting thing to think about as we go on. I mean, maybe there was some money associated with fostering children. You know, maybe you got some money from the government for that or something. Um, You know, it's something that people don't focus on the most when they're talking about Belle Gunness, but it's something that stuck out to me definitely in her story.
0: It's unusual. So in 1902... Belle married again, and her second husband this time was a widower and a butcher by trade named Peter Gunness, who was also a native of Norway. And Peter Gunnis came to the marriage with two kids already one was an infant named jenny and she mysteriously died just a week after the wedding when she was home alone with Belle. and the other was a five-year-old girl and after that incident with the baby she was removed from her father and Belle's care and taken away by her uncle to wisconsin Peter Gunnis didn't really last that much longer. Only eight months after the wedding, he was struck on the head by a heavy cast iron sausage grinder that fell off of a kitchen shelf. And it was a fatal injury that, according to Hartzell's article, was, quote, augmented by the crock of hot brine that, quote, fell on him simultaneously. Sounds kind of suspicious, doesn't it? Yeah, you would think
1: so. And in fact, Bell's 14-year-old foster daughter was said to have told people after that that she had seen Mama smack him on the head with a cleaver. But later she denied this when she was questioned by the coroner. The coroner and other people actually were suspicious of this. But ultimately, there was no evidence. So they had to buy Bell's story, and she collected another $3,500 in insurance money.
0: But after Peter Gunness' death, Bell started taking out matrimonial ads in Scandinavian newspapers. She's looking for love. She describes herself as good-looking, quote, stout, quote, womanly. An example of how one of these ads might read, quote, Comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts of Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well-provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. And uh probably my favorite part of these ads, they'd end with lines like Triflers need not apply. So she wanted serious inquiry. She was not messing around. No, and she didn't just want to chat either. No scrubs. <laughs> Exactly. She got
1: several responses to these ads. And basically, this is how it worked. She started exchanging letters with a guy, and they would get to know each other. She'd tell him how great her setup at the farm was, tell him, you know, express some sort of affection or something, tell him that she loved him, even make veiled sexual overtures. But at the same time, she made it clear that she expected these guys to bring something to the relationship, namely cash. So after corresponding with the guy for a while, she'd invite him to Laporte, but encourage him to sell all of his belongings and property beforehand and bring the cash along with him. I like,
0: I got the farm. We just need the money. Come and bring it.
1: Yeah. But here's the catch. She didn't want any of these guys to tell anyone close to them what they were doing. So guys would show up, run a few errands with her. Usually one of those errands would be to the bank, go to her house, and then they'd Pretty much never be seen again.
0: And this happened with several men, including a guy named John Moe, another named Ole Budsberg. Both were from Wisconsin. And if anybody at all came looking for these guys after the fact, Belle would just say that she hadn't seen them, or, oh yeah, they were here, but they left. And that's what she'd tell her suspicious neighbors, too, because they would see these men go in and then never come out again. And she'd just say they had left at night. They were gone already. And in 1906, something happened that really people couldn't ignore quite as much. Belle's foster daughter, Jenny, disappeared. But Belle had an excuse there, too. She told people that Jenny had gone off to college in California, making something of herself, it seemed. Yeah, and it seemed the
1: daughter being missing was barely a hiccup for her she just kept up the letter writing, and Bell's mailman even said that she wrote around 10 letters a day and got about the same number back in the mail, and on days that she didn't get any letters, she would be kind of upset, kind of cranky. So this all went smoothly for her, relatively so, until she struck up a correspondence with South Dakota farmer Andrew Helgeline. Presumably, she used the same strategy on him that she did with others. His brother later found some of their letters, and several of these have actually been preserved, so people have translated them, they're written in Nor and and saw the kind of methods that she used in talking to them. Exactly. So throughout the letters, Bell would constantly remind him about bringing the money to Laporte and give him all kinds of advice about how to bring it to She would say, (laughs) you know, tell him the denomination of the bills to bring and tell him to sew it inside his underwear and that he, again, that he shouldn't tell anybody about it and just kept sort of repeating these things throughout. And Catherine Ramsland, who is a forensic psychologist who who's written about the Gunness case, says Bell's technique of regularly harping on the money thing is actually a technique called seeding that's used in hypnosis. So she would try to implant this idea of bringing her money into his unconscious mind with constant repetition.
0: It seems a little suspicious, but <laughs> I mean, I guess they, they were... Distracted almost by the sentiments that were also in her letter, because she would appeal to the needs of the the immigrant man too. He was probably lonely and homesick in South Dakota, and her talk of Norway probably comforted him. They weren't they weren't all just about the money. So yeah, they could relate. They could relate to each other. It seemed like a promising relationship. So, after a year and a half of writing these letters back and forth, Andrew came to Laporte in early 1908, and then. Vanished just like all of the other guys. But what Bell wasn't banking on was his brother Osley, who knew where Andrew had gone. So Andrew must have broken one of those rules of Bell. Yeah, don't tell he, anyone. Yeah, he
1: he broke that rule. I think he didn't actually follow instructions either, as far as selling his farm and you know, sewing the bills and his underwear and all those things. He did have a lot of money sent to the bank in Laporte, but he didn't necessarily follow all the rules. But Osley was concerned, and he started writing to Bell. He really thought that his brother was going to return in a week or so. And so when he didn't, he he reached out and he didn't believe Bell's explanations that Andrew had simply gone away. Around the same time, Belle had some other trouble. She fired her hired hand, Ray Lamphere. And he was said to be in love with her. He was probably jealous of all the guys coming around. Who knows? But he started making public scenes after he was let go. And Bell tried to take legal action against him and have him declared insane.
0: So maybe it was a combination of pressure from this, as well as some increasing questions from these relatives of the men who she'd written to, as well as questions from her neighbors. But on April 27th, 1908, Belle kept her kids home from school and she went into town and saw her lawyer and uh, wrote her will and she was also seen buying a lot of kerosene, so went into town and did some did some errands. Of course, from the intro, we know what happened next. Her house burned down, the bodies were found, and ultimately they found between 12 and 14 bodies, including the body of the foster daughter, Jenny, who hadn't gone off to college, and a couple of other unidentified children. And there were several theories as to what happened with the fire. Immediately after, a lot of people thought that Bell had committed suicide because she was afraid that all of her crimes were about to come to light, that they had been discovered. Lamphere, however, was the one that the police immediately arrested. Bell had told her lawyer the day before that she was afraid of him, and he was charged with four counts of murder and with arson. So it seemed initially that that maybe he was to blame.
1: It was found later, though, that the four people in the cellar had died by means other than the fire. they had probably been poisoned by strychnine. They found traces of strychnine in their bodies, actually, but the bodies had been mishandled so that they couldn't prove it. So at Lamphere's trial in May 1908, he was only convicted of arson. He died less than two years later in prison, and on his deathbed, he confessed to setting the house on fire and to helping Bell escape. He said the headless body belonged to a woman from Chicago whom Bell had just hired as a housekeeper. She killed the housekeeper and the three children and planted the bodies to make it look like an accident. He also admitted to helping Belle bury the other victims, although he said that he wasn't involved in actually murdering them. But he did describe how Belle did murder her victims. It turns out that she poisoned a lot of them. Some of them, she left their bodies intact. Some of them, she butchered. Some of the bodies, she actually dropped into a vat of hot water and then covered with quicklime, which is a substance that kind of burns like acid. So I'm assuming she did this to disguise the bodies. So who knows how many of these details are actually accurate, but this is probably the closest scenario to most to what most people think happened as far as Bell what happened to Bell after the fire. Though nobody knows for certain what happened to her after that or to her money. Historians estimate that she may have extorted up to $90,000 from her suitors, but the day after the fire there was only 700 in her Laporte bank account.
0: So we mentioned in the beginning that Bell's story did get a lot of attention at the time. And since then, she's become sort of a spooky local legend in that part of Indiana. Neighbors, for instance, claim to have seen her in the weeks after the fire. And there have been numerous Bell sightings since then. But the most notable one happened in Los Angeles in 1931. So a considerable amount of time after after her disappearance. A woman named Esther Carlson was accused of poisoning a man she worked for named August Lindstrom for $2,000 that he'd put in a joint bank account. And Carlson died before this went to trial, but a couple people familiar with Bell, they were LaPorte residents who were in Los Angeles at the time, claimed a newspaper photo of Carlson matched that of Bell. And others also confirmed the connection, but there wasn't any definitive proof that this was the same woman still up to her old murdering ways all the way in L.A.
1: Yeah, so I mean the question is still out there. Did she die in the fire or not? It's really tough to say. I mean people have wondered about this for years. Authorities eventually found a dental bridge with one tooth in it in the ruins of the fire that a dentist positively identified as Bell's. But historians were hardly convinced by this.
0: And how convenient, I mean if you were gonna fake your death in a fire, leave behind your dental bridge?
1: Yeah, another point that I found in some of my research was, okay, Belle Gunnis is obviously a psychopath. She's killed all of these people. So is she really going to care to pull out one tooth to leave in this dental bridge? Probably not. When you look at it that way, people have not let this go, though. In 2007, late 2007, Suzanne McKay, a great granddaughter of Belle Gunness's sister and one of the last living relatives of the infamous serial killer, gave a team of U.S. researchers permission to exhume the headless body that was found in the cellar of the torched farmhouse. And they were going to compare the DNA from the remains there to saliva samples from Belle's sealed letters so as far as we know the tests were inconclusive with that and i think that they got a sample from a dna sample from the family member also and we're trying to test that as well and i looked for more recent updates on that and i couldn't find anything more recent in the last couple of years so i don't know for sure if they were able to find a match or not i think what they're really looking for is to find the opposite of that is to find that there's not a match because most people Believe that it Bell's was not missing. her that yeah. Bill's missing, and then you know the mystery will still stand. Where did, Where did she, she go? go? What, what did, did she, do? she do? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah boy, jinx, Dublina. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't want to jinx you because we still have a few things left to say. Um, if you have any other fun, spooky topics, this is coming out right before October I think so we're going to be kicking off a gruesome, well not necessarily gruesome, it can just be spooky fun, uh, whatever Halloween kind of topics. We love doing Halloween episodes. It's kind of an October tradition at Stuff You Missed in History class. So send us your suggestions and we would love to have an October full of of halloween beam.
1: Episodes. Yeah, and sell, send us Bell Gunnis updates if you know anything else about the story as it's progressed, or if you just have a favorite aspect of the story that we didn't talk about. I mean, we always try to cover as much as we can, but we have time limits, so there are definitely details here that we left out. So and well, this you is have a, a good
0: conspiracy theory kind of story, It too. really is. So we want to know what
1: people think. Please write us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at in history.
0: And if you want to learn more about people kind of like Bill Gunnis, we do have an article on serial killers. You can look for it by searching for How Serial Killers Work on our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.